Hi, friends, and welcome to another episode of the That Sounds Fun podcast. I am your host, Annie F. Downs, and I'm so glad to be here with you today. I mean, are y'all like so proud of me that we've had so many episodes in a row this spring? I know, I know, it's so fun. I'm having the best time. And I keep finding people I want to introduce you to, and I keep having friends who want to come on the show. So it has been super awesome. Speaking of friends on the show, Ellie Holcomb is the music you're hearing in the background, and her episode came out a couple of weeks ago. So if you haven't heard it, definitely go back and check it out. Her new record, Red Sea Road, is absolutely one of my favorites. I cannot quit it. I hope you are enjoying it as well. Okay, so you know how we do on That Sounds Fun. Everybody who comes on here, you can trust, is one of my like actual friends that I want you to meet. That's kind of one of our like bars we set. And today we have, how do I say, varied from that a bit. So now we're gonna expand the That Sounds Fun podcast to not only people that I am friends with, but people that I want to be friends with. Is that fair? <laughs> so today I get to introduce you to someone that I've long wanted to be friends with, and I. I think we worked it out, to be determined, but it feels great so far. John Mark Comer is one of my very favorite authors and teachers right now. I just love the books he's put out. His book, Garden City, a couple of years ago has just really influenced my life in probably greater measure than any other book besides the Bible that comes to mind right now that I've read in the last couple of years. It is just incredible. Garden City and his new one, God Has a Name, actually released this week. It came out on Tuesday. So hop on Amazon and grab a copy for you and a copy for a friend and y'all read this thing together and talk about it because it is so interesting and such a good read. So I've been a big fan of John Marks. And so when I knew his book was coming out, I just thought, let's see if John Mark will come be on the podcast. So on our first day of friendship, it feels like John Mark and I covered a lot of good ground and I am so excited that you get to hear the conversation. So here is my interview conversation, birth of the friendship with John Mark Comer. Okay, John Mark, so you're a one, I'm a seven. We're recording Boom. now, keep well, going. We'll, we'll so when on. ones are healthy, they go towards seven. Yeah, because yeah, I think exactly. when I'm healthy, I go toward a five. Is that right? Um, I can't remember. I don't know. That, I so do you just want to like learn a bunch of stuff and not tell anybody about it? <laughs> yeah, no. Oh, no, it's when you're healthy. No, when you're healthy. Okay, because you know, yeah, you have, yeah. there's a wing for when you're healthy and when you're unhealthy. So when I'm unhealthy, I go to yeah, four, yeah, yeah. which is the archetype: <gasps> artist, creative, yes. melancholy, envy. I just think nobody understands me. I'm alone in the universe. Right. Life is horrible. Right. I wallow in my pain. And then when I'm healthy, I, I go to seven. So I just want to go out and have a beer and celebrate and relax right. and let's eat bad and have fun. And, you know, <laughs> dude, that's the problem. I live my often, whole life but... like that. That's why the podcast is called That Sounds Fun. Because I was really like, what else sounds fun to me? Uh, let's do a podcast. Seven, seven are the best. So what's the root sin of a one is anger. And the root sin oh. of a seven is gluttony, right? Gluttony, because so, I want all of everything. Yeah, and not just with food, just like, yeah, you have it all, but oh, you have to run I want to watch all the movies. I want to read every tweet someone sends. I want to experience, I want to meet everyone. I mean, I, I have seen it. Once I learned that, that's the beauty of the Enneagram to me. Once I learned that, I can see it all the time in me. All the time. I know there's people that are so anti-Enneagram, which means they're number four, by the way, because they're <laughs> anti-label. Exactly. That means they're the E. And they don't yeah. want to be labeled. And I'm like, oh, you're right. a four. I, I can just label right. you right now. Just you're assign like, a number. You're a snowflake. Yeah, to your that's entity, right. Because we, we don't want to feel like we were made in a Chinese factory, but then we right. are like, oh, dang it. My goodness, exactly I just look right. right up to. But seven, I mean, you're in the right day and age of history, you know? Like, this yeah. is the right time to be a seven. 
You don't want to be a because seven in the middle ages as a peasant no, or something no, like that. No, you know? Now, listen, here's what you need to know about my podcast. Okay. I only have friends on here. It's one All of the right. rules. Like, it is a... So we just became the, friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you haven't known it, but yes, that's been the thing um, that we've been friends already. But that... So you're genuinely the first person in 40-some-odd episodes that was not my friend before we started recording. Wow. Because... I'm that big of a fan, dude. I'm so into. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. We've already got a plaque of something. That's exactly what it is. Uh, We've got a plaque on the way. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Right. You're the only one there. You're the only one. Um, Let me tell you, last two Christmases ago, not 16, but 15. I mean, I think I bought, I'm not exaggerating, because I do a book for everyone at Christmas, everyone that works with me, everyone in my family. I kind of, I do like one book that was the book of the year for me, oh, and it was beautiful. Garden City two years ago. Oh my ago. gosh, that's so kind. So everybody, and listen, I sent out a tweet and sent out a couple of texts to some friends who I knew had read some of your stuff, and one of my buddies, Tyler Beatty, who's a professional baseball player, he plays for the Giants, he wrote back and said to tell you that Garden City changed his life. And wow. then how he plays baseball is different because of Garden City. No way. Oh, yeah, my gosh. Yeah, because he beautiful. says, I'm always thinking in a garden. What am I growing out here? Even yeah. as he's playing baseball. No way. Isn't that interesting? Have you had athletes talk to you about Garden City? Uh, no, that would be the first. You know, I'm like, I don't have an athletic bone in my body to my own chagrin. But uh, <laughs> no, not that, not that I can think of. I don't know a lot of professional athletes. That's absolutely beautiful. I know. I thought that was so rad that he was. So he said, tell him that he changed his life and changed how he plays baseball. And then his big, big question for you, if you're ready to dive in. Okay. Okay. Was how do you handle the stresses and the disappointments and not give up on wanting to create? Because the idea of Garden City for the two people who haven't read it that listen to the podcast is that every you are always meant to be creating for the good of others. Correct. Have I summarized that? Sure. Absolutely. And, um, and so his thing is, how do you keep going when there's failures and disappointments? Yeah, which is, which is life, isn't it, Tom? Right. <laughs> right. Living, living in that, living in the gap between what we want and what is, what we dream of and, and what is. I mean, I think I've been thinking about this, this paradigm lately. I've been thinking a lot about the story of Joseph. And, you know, Joseph in that quintessential story has these dreams about when he's a young man, dreams for his future, about his role in the family of God, about his brothers will bow down to him. And then what happens in his story for decades is the exact opposite of that dream. It is literally disappointment after disappointment, after letdown, after letdown, failure after failure. Instead of his brothers bowing down to him, he's bowing down to his brothers. Instead of him becoming a ruler, um, right out of the gate, he's a slave. Instead of his, you know, Technicolor dream coat as his claim to fame, it's stripped off of him. He's thrown in a cistern, sold into slavery, just abuse after abuse after abuse for 22 years before that dream actually comes to pass. And then it does come to pass. Like everything that he saw as a young 17 or so year old man all comes to pass, but 22 years later. And I've just been thinking through a story. And, that, and, and that's a long time, especially that if you're such a long time. an American and in particular if you're a millennial or anywhere close to that, it's just 22 years is an eternity. You know, we don't yeah. even think in that span, but I've been thinking about his story and just this little grid I've been working with of different, harder, longer, better, that when we have a dream, there's always a gap between 
the if you want to borrow from the pregnancy analogy, from the conception of that dream and the birth of that dream. There's always a, a waiting period between the dream when that idea or picture comes in your mind's eye or desire starts to generate in your heart, or if you want to use this language, that calling from God comes over you. There's always a gap between that dream, between the reality, the fulfillment of that dream. Sometimes it's a few weeks, sometimes it's a few months, sometimes it's 22 years or more. And I've just been thinking about this grid of different, harder, long, better, longer, better, that when the dream comes to pass, nine times out of 10, if you think about the story of Joseph, and I think you could lay this template over pretty much any dream and any character yeah. in the story of the Bible, it's usually different than we expect because early on, you know, we get 10%. So Joseph sees like his brothers bowing down. He doesn't see prison. He doesn't see Potiphar's wife. He doesn't see any of that. He doesn't see Egypt. Right. <laughs> right. You know, he, see, he gets about 10% of it. And then he fills in the other 90%, you know? And so we see so low, we just get this hint of what's to come. And so when it actually comes to pass, it's usually different. It's usually harder because that other 90% we fill in with utopia, you know, or bliss, sure. or it's just sure. going to be great. Marriage is the best analogy. You know, everybody's dying to get Listen, married. Listen, because I'm single. We got to talk about yes. it. Oh, I've yes. already got Loveology on my list to talk oh, to you about because so I've read thing. it too. Yeah. That's the thing. So, so I like all single people and they hate it when I talk to them about this. But I'm going to hate single, it, but I'm going to stick in because we're friends And now. you want to get married. I know it's so easy to just imagine it as just bliss and heaven on earth and all of your problems go away and you're never lonely again and you live happily ever after. And the romanticism of our culture and Hollywood, it just fuels this kind of utopian vision of a future that somehow like you lost sight of sin and reality and disappointment <laughs> and old age and you know all of the stuff that comes with it and so it's usually different it's usually harder it's usually longer you know the long i think the larger the vision the longer the wait the shorter the vision the, sh the smaller the vision the shorter the wait and so the bigger the dream that you have in your heart for your future the longer the wait will be because you have to become the kind of person who's ready to steward it and then I think yeah. better, like on the positive side, when that dream finally comes to pass and time has gone by and we've been stripped of our ego where the dream is all about us, you know, Joseph's a great example. Joseph is a changed man. By the time that dream comes to pass, all of his arrogance, his immaturity, his lack of wisdom, it's all gone. He is a humble, wise, gracious um, man of character. But it took 22 years of prison and waiting and thinking that God gave up on him, you know? So I don't know. I've just been thinking through that grid as I think about dreams in my own life that have yet to come to pass and areas where instead of fulfillment, there's been disappointment, let down, angst. Just thinking through that grid of different, harder, longer, but in the end, better. And just thinking, you know, of the Joseph story and what would it look like just to wait, wait it out. Man, that's brilliant I, I need everyone to know that that's copyrighted as john mark comers because that needs to be your next book dude well i don't know about that but that was Super a little bit of a sermon huh? it's a monday no, Sorry, I'm tired, it's so, so I'm no i'm into ramble. it and it's really kind of you to talk to be this podcast will come out thursday so two days after your book releases but this Fantastic. is the day before your book releases it is what, absolutely. what are your feel your new book is called god has a name what what do you feel this is your fourth book am i correct about that yep yeah well done exactly so do we, do you have like a day before ritual of this is what we do the day before a book comes out or this is what I feel before a book comes out or do you have any of that? Um, you know, not something big, mostly just pray. I'm going to spend a lot of time today in prayer and just fighting off the anxiety of book yeah. release. You know, yeah. I, yeah. I love, love, love writing. I love everything about writing. I love reading. I love writing. I love the whole book experience. The only part I really don't like is the actual release of the book. Yeah, that's <laughs> Cause fair. there's so much that comes along with it and 
You know, it's, so. it's the same grid that you just talked about, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's harder. It's longer. <laughs> yes. Maybe it's better. Yeah. Um, can I insert a seven idea into your pre-book launch? Yeah. Tell me what you do. Give me. Give Here's me your, what I do. Download. The night before my book comes out, I go to dinner and throw a party. Like I th- because then it has nothing to do with how many it sells. It has nothing to do with what number it gets to on anything. I just celebrate that we finished. And I bring my friends along. It's beautiful. I love it. So that's what I, I'm not the boss of you, John Mark. You can do whatever you want with your life. I'm just telling you, I like to throw a party the day before a book comes out. Because tonight's well, the night that you go like, hey, Amazon's got it. And people have pre-ordered. And they're going to push a button tomorrow. And it's going to happen. And exactly. you're going to have, and, and, and there's literally nothing else you can do. But everything I Annie Downs or John Mark Comer can do to get a book out has been done. Has been done. And Amazon pushes the button at midnight. See, but now I didn't schedule a party for tonight. So now I just, I'm well, a one. Well, but you have, a, you have wife and now. kids. It, yeah, that's right. It's not going to be perfect. So they're they can out of like. Town. It's, it's, well, it's spring break week in Oregon. So. <gasps> Um, so everybody, you're just a lonesome yeah, dub out there. Our city is empty because the weather up here is less than awesome. And so spring break, even people that don't have kids, they just kind of all disappear from the city. Where does everybody go? go down California? To California. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Most people in California, go. if they have more money, they'll go farther. But California, it's like road trip week where everybody just goes okay. south to the sun. What is your weather in Portland right now? Just normal. Lousy, <laughs> rainy. Rainy. <laughs> cold, but um, not really that cold. Just, you know. Whatever. I've only been there once. I think we share a friend, Joy Egrich. Yeah, she's fantastic. Yeah, she is fantastic. And they just moved. You know, they just moved to Paris, her and her husband. I did not know that. Isn't that rad? Yes, they moved to Paris. I mean, it's but before, it was always fun to watch her on Instagram stories and all over kind of show us what Portland looks like. And the one time I went, it, it rains like a lot. It, like, it was like well really... six months of the year the city's unbeatable because the city itself okay. is incredible absolutely fantastic city and the weather six months of the year is really pretty fantastic our summer is the garden of eden falls amazing spring is a little hit or miss but usually may right. is fantastic but then the other six months of the year it's quite beatable Right. <laughs> okay, let's back up a smidge. Did you grow up in Portland? Um, Silicon Valley, Bay Area, until I was 13, and then I've been in Portland ever since. Okay. Why stay in Portland? What's it, what's your thing with Portland? Well, I planted a church here a number of right. years ago, and that's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Okay, Bridgetown. California is like my little emotional mistress, and I still yeah. <laughs> dream of one day going back home. But in the meantime, I'm here. I feel the call of God here. And I love Portland because... Portland is a great example of where America is going as far as urbanization, secularization, the post-Christian environment. I think America is at an interest. America really is a United States of America. And there's massive disparity on every level, social, economic, political, um, religious across our nation. And that's one of the beautiful things about our nation. But I do think that overall there is a trend um, particular with millennials toward urbanization, toward secularization, to from a Christian to a post-Christian culture, and so I think cities like Portland or San Francisco or LA or New York or Boston are kind of the harbinger of what's to come. I think we're about thirty or forty years beh- ahead of kind of Middle America, the South, but then thirty or forty years behind Europe. So I really want to be in a city like Portland because I think we need church models that are um, models, for lack of a better word, a a way of doing church and following Jesus that is able to not only survive, but thrive in kind of the corrosive soil of a secular post-Christian environment. Because most of the churches that are just killing it in America are in a very different environment, more suburban, more conservative. That's not a bad thing at all. 
We just need a way of doing church, a way of following Jesus in community that will work in kind of where America is going, not where it is and where it's come from. So, and I think the great question that we're asking in Portland is how do we in America not become France or Germany or Iceland or Scandinavia where the church is all but gone. There's literally, there's barely anything left. There is something left, but not, there's very little left and it has little or no sway over culture at large. So I think that's the, the question we're asking is what does it look like to practice the way of Jesus in this kind of a context? And Portland is just a great place to do that. You can do it with a family. It's not quite as expensive as San Francisco or New York or LA. So it's a bit easier to raise a family here, but it is still very much an urban environment and we love it. Minus do you have the a rain. lot of millennials? Yeah, that's right. Minus the rain. Do you have a lot of millennial aged people in your church? Yeah, I mean, 70% almost of my church is single. Most oh. of them be under the age of 35. And the older the church gets, um, the older it gets in the sense of it's still really young, but we have more people of age and maturity. But we're right in the middle of the city. So the demographic of the city, because of how expensive it is to live in an urban environment, is basically young professionals. So Portland's the most overeducated city in America. So our church is just chock full of 20-something, 30-something single professionals. And right. then kind of older, empty nesters who tend to be really wealthy and uber, uber progressive at a political and a kind of spiritual level. And ah, that demographic, for lack of a harder word, is really hard to reach with the gospel of Jesus. You're talking about people that make a ton of money, are hyper progressive, are pretty hostile to the way of Jesus. So our church is a bit more freighted to the other end. Mm -hmm. And if picked to live in a city where that yeah. is, yeah, that's exactly right. They exactly, know what where, yeah. yeah, a little kind of wants to be Scandinavia kind of city, you know. Yeah. Man, that's fascinating. So I listen to Bridgetown on and off um, at podcasts when I'm out walking at Lake Rat. Have you been to Nashville before? Do you know much of Nashville? I have. I don't know the lake or anything. I've only been maybe two or three times and usually just kind of in the city center. Yeah, we need to get you back. City center is where it's at. You're in the right spot. But Yeah, I actually like Nashville. There's some great food there. I had a decent cup of coffee. I was into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good. Um, but so I've listened to Bridgetown and it does feel like, I'll tell you something that I like about what you're doing and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. It feels like y'all are willing to try things without knowing if they're going to work. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, that, back to what I said, we, we are trying to figure out how do you do church in this kind of an environment? And, um, and so there's a lot of R and D right now, a lot of, ah, oh, let's try this. Let's try that. Not in a flippant kind of way. Um, every, everything is thoughtful and prayerful, but in a experimental, the right kind of experimental kind of way. How do you do evangelism for lack of a better word in a place where nobody wants to come to church and people are hostile to what you believe? How do you do theology? How do you do community and hypermobile transient millennial culture where people are busy and working and on the phone all the time, you know? So yeah, it's a lot of experimentation right now. And I'll tell you one of the things I love. So I grew up in the South, um, this is our friendship. Did you grow in up in Nashville everyone. or did you end No, up I grew up outside later. of Atlanta and I've been Got in Nashville it. for nine years. So this Fantastic. is home. This is where I'm, this is, it's very, it sounds a lot like how you feel about Portland where I, I totally feel called here. This is home here. My mistress, for lack of a better word, is Scotland, is Edinburgh. Like that's the other country that I'm always like, I could always yeah. just move there. Oh, I've been. Edinburgh is on. Oh, and the people, it's just, yeah, I love it. I super love the people. And the interesting thing, when I live there is the only time I haven't lived in the Bible Belt. Yeah. And so experiencing church with friends who, and seeing the loss socially of being a believer was very interesting because the people who believe it are go, okay, this is going to cost me, so I'm all in. 
Yeah, there's a beauty to that when you're in an environment where there is no cultural Christianity, you know, yeah. where there's no cultural pressure to believe in God or go to church. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It yeah. does, as sad as that is, and it's not all it's, you know, hiked up to be, but there's a beauty to that. I think it does breed a kind of seriousness to community and discipleship in church. Yeah, that's that's how I felt there. And that's what it seems to be happening. And, you know, it's happening in New York as well. And just seeing how that how it's causing people to dive in deep because they recognize that they're making a sacrifice. I mean, are you seeing that in Nashville? Because in one sense, Nashville is very much, you know, Bible Belt in the South. But in another sense, it's kind of the more progressive little creative arts epicenter of that part of the country. I mean, are you starting to see the tides of secularism and the post-Christian totally. thing crop up and of course reaction against the church. It is and- so different than when I moved here even. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, when I moved here, you'd meet someone in a bar or in a restaurant and they might be drinking a lot. They might be making totally different choices than you would expect someone to make. And they say, what church do you go to? Here's where I go. You know, like, and it was very mind numbing for me a little bit at first. And that is not the case anymore. It's very, and there isn't quite the pressure to go to church that there was even a decade ago here. Right. Um, yeah. And so that's been, but also the interesting thing, John Mark, is here we have a really high level of churches per square mile and also a really high percent of um, adult entertainment stores per square mile because yeah. we are one thing by day and something else by night. Yeah, gosh, that's and crazy. So it's a lot of it's a lot of hidden things in our neck of the woods. It would and seem- then I, yeah, and that's every everybody I talk to says the exact same thing about the South in general. And then what I see happening sometimes when we act with you know older and younger generations out of the South is often the, I think the older generations don't realize how fast things are secularizing on right underneath their nose, but in the younger generation. Because even if you're not in a Portland or a San Francisco or an LA, because of the digital age, if you have an iPhone, you're in my world. Yeah, if, that's you know right. what I mean? If that's you watch TV, yeah. if you have an iPhone, if you're on social media, then I don't care how small town, conservative, Southern Bible Belt your actual city or town is, you at least have a window into the world that I'm living in and raising my kids in that is this hyper secular, post Christian kind of, you know, world. And so I think it's happening more and more in particular with millennials all across America, even in the South. Yeah. Now we're recording this, so it's not live. So if you don't want to answer this, you totally don't have to. (laughs) Well, there's a humdinger of a preference. Right, right. And so that's starting, that's been true all along, but now you can say, Annie, I don't want to say that. But I'd be curious if you got dropped in Nashville for a week and got to, and we said, okay, take over this church tell us the first two things you want us to do that is actually what the next generation needs from a church. Not that the church isn't doing that. You're not even making a judgment on what the church is already doing, but just overall what you're seeing in the South versus other cities, what would you go? Here's the first couple of things I would tell y'all to do different. Um, I just, well, first off, I would never do that. Um, (laughs) That's why I said you don't have to answer. I just think it's a a fascinating question. It is a fascinating question, (laughs) whether of hypothetical scenarios. I would never do that for a whole whole lot of different reasons. And one of my great passions as a pastor, and even as a writer, is contextualization. So I believe that so much of the church, particular kind of megachurch culture, is a contextual. One of the first jobs of a pastor, of a leader, really just of a follower of Jesus Jesus in any city or any context, is to fully, like, wrap your head around the context that you call home and to to take flesh and blood, you know, in the way of Jesus to move into the neighborhood and to really get your context. Yeah, so yeah. all that to say, I'm really slow to step into somebody else's context and say, this is how you do it. This is how you not do it. 
that's it. I think really if good. you know, if I was backed up into a wall and I had some kind of a you know bizarre scenario like that, I think first I would talk about that about contextualization and help people realize that the South is secularizing with young people a lot faster than they think it is, mm-hmm. and that people need to wake up and not just ride the tide of kind of i think a lot of church models are really built out of the 90s and they still work a little bit at least with Mm -hmm. a certain age group a certain demographic a certain right kind of context and i think the easy option is just to ride the wave of kind of 90s church and do it how it's always been done and rather than actually adapt innovate change ask the question what do we need to talk about to make sense to the next generation which is our generation now what do we yeah. need? To, how do we need to reshape the church? You know, so I think there are conversations that aren't happening when I hang out with people from the South that I think need to be happening sooner rather than later about the future, about secularization, about a post-Christian environment, even in yeah. that space. Yeah. I think the second thing I would talk about is just the need for practicing the way of Jesus in community, which is really basic. But I think, you know, the it's really interesting. So I grew up in the mega church culture. And I'm, I'm kind of a little bit agnostic to it. I think there's some huge, great things about it and some 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 big pros and some big cons. Sure. But I grew up in it. My dad was a pastor at one of the first megachurches in America. So back in the 70s when there were only 10 churches over the size of 2,000 people in all of oh, America. Wow. So I've been kind of in that conversation as long as I can remember. I planted a church with my dad when I was 23 that grew by you know 1,000 people a year. It became this big megachurch thing over a couple of years. And so I just, I've grown up around that. My entire kind of life experience until the last couple of years has been in that context. And I think it's done a number to how Americans think about church. If you think about the fact that historically the church was, you know, on average in America, about 80 or 90 people. And it was a much smaller, just a very different experience of church. Not necessarily better or worse, just very different. I think one of the things that we lost with the shift to a mega culture is we lost this idea of practicing the way of Jesus and doing it together in community. And so we're just really straight up. Our church isn't even that huge, but we're really straight up that Sunday is not community. This is not family or community. This is, in a, this is hundreds of people or thousands of people in a room. And there's a place for that. I really believe in the role of teaching believe in worship, believe in vision. I'm not hostile to that. We do it. But it has to go hand in hand with what we call church around a table. So we're always talking about church around a stage and church around a table and how you need both. And when we're around the stage, we're always asking, what can you do around the stage that you can't do around a table? And vice versa, what can you do around a table you can't do around the stage? And I just think the the Southern mega church kind of Sunday-centric model, man, we need to get back to church around a table and to people actually living in community where they know and they're known. It's not just chit-chat before and after church and, hi, how are you? I'm great. How are the kids? Fine. But it's actual life on life together, the highs and the lows, and built not just around you know dinner with friends, but really around practicing the way of Jesus and really taking on the practices of Jesus and really getting back into the spiritual disciplines and spiritual formation and rediscovering what it looks like to follow Jesus and what it looks like to be transformed. So I think those are the two things I would talk about. One, we just we got to talk more about your context, and two, we got to get back to the basics of practicing the way in community around a table, not just coming to church and watching somebody talk to you. Right. When did you realize that you were an adult in the church and not a kid anymore? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, when did it switch for you that you started having these ideas and these thoughts where you're like, oh, now I'm one of the ones in charge? You know, I think I, I had a gift in that I um, came of age in a church culture that did an incredible job of giving leadership to young people. And, you know, so I see the exact opposite all the time, particularly when I travel. I see this kind of old guard that just will not pass the baton. 
And it's just gut-wrenching. And you see the young generation either never grow up or, you know, go somewhere else and have to do it on their own. And so I just, I think I really had the gift. And there were a number of people that gave me opportunities that I never should have had way before I should have had them. Sure, right. Um, so, yeah, and I think for me, it was really young. You know, I started working at a church when I was 19 and planted a church when I was 23. So I think from a pretty young age, I felt like somebody gave me a baton and said, go yeah. for it. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I grew up in a similar situation where you kept going like, man, people trust me and I don't know that they should. <laughs> I know. Now in hindsight, I'm like, what were you thinking? Right. I, that was that was mild heresy and right. bad. <laughs> But I've also seen, I'm, I, I don't know how old you are. I'm 36, but I've also seen. Yeah, in the same last, here. Like, yeah. Look at this. One Look in seven. See, Cla what, class of 98, was that you? That's right. Oh, it's great, dude. It's great, 98. Um, so it's just been interesting to me in probably the last four or five years to look around and realize that our peers are making decisions for generations. Right. Versus the people older. Like it's not many people older than us anymore. They're looking at us and going, what do you need to do what you're supposed to do? Versus like, what do you need to become something? It's almost like they're like, hey, you're the thing you're going to be. How can I help you to make sure you're investing correctly after you? Right. And that just was kind of a little bit of a shock to me. We had uh, in Nashville, our church has gone through some hard stuff in the last six months and our pastor left. And it's just been really painful and kind of seeing like, oh, look who's in. Look, now it's time to see who the adults are. Right. You know, and that's yeah. just been really interesting. Yeah. And that's your mid 30s, too. There's something to that age. 35 was the only birthday I, I didn't enjoy. And really? Why? Uh, yeah, well, I think everybody's different, but I think if you're, especially if you're millennial, you do anything remotely impressive in your 20s and everybody's blown away. Sure. Because it's perpetual adolescence and so many people didn't grow up or didn't grow up until they were, you know, 30s and new 20. So anything I did in my 20s, people were like, oh my gosh, you're incredible. And then <laughs> you turn 30. And then there was this sense of, well, yeah, you better do something great. Like, all right, nobody's impressed anymore. And that was, that was sure. okay. But then by 35, what I didn't like about 35, it was like all of a sudden, this is who you are, you know? Like when you're, when you're in your 20s, the sky's the limit, especially in American culture, especially if you're a white American male, you kind of think I can do anything, I can become anything, the sky's the limit. It's a celebrity culture, so we all think we'll be famous. And then by 35, you're kind of like, no, this, this is who I, be, this is who I am. And, and not, not in a fatalistic sense, like one of my lifelong values is growth. So I hope and plan to grow and mature and develop and read and learn and innovate and adapt, um, until I die. So it's not like, oh, you know, I'm stuck now. I'll never grow. I'll never mature. I'll never change. But in a sense, by 35, you become the person that God has been shaping you to become if all goes well, mm. you know? Ah, so I think that was, there was like a weight that settled over me at 35. Yeah. Like, wow, no, this is, there's no more when I grow up, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> no, you grew up and this is who you are yeah. for better or for worse, you know? So there's a real sobering moment, a real questioning of, I had like almost like a little mini midlife crisis in my early thirties yeah. of like, wow, yeah. is this, who do I want to be and who am I called to be? And what's my identity and calling before God, you know? Yeah. I just heard Ira Glass talk about this, that hosts the This American Life podcast. And he said something like, I mean, he said, people keep talking about adulting and he's like, and how they don't want to be adulting. And he said, I'm 48. Like, I'm good at this. I know how to be an adult now. He was like, I've done it and it's good. And everybody needs to quit avoiding the adult part of adulting. Yes. Yeah, it's it good. Great. And, and I, I love it more and more. And the funny thing is people talk about how I'm young and I'm like, do you know, I'm 36. I'm not that young. 
And I think that's the ironic thing. The older you get, the more you redefine what young is. So we're already thinking about, you know, what's the next generation? What's the post-millennial conversation, which everybody's, they're all about 17, 18 right now. They're just hitting our church. And what does leadership look like for them? You know what I mean? And what's some constantly spending time with, you know, early 20-somethings, asking questions and learning and trying to stay a part of that conversation. Is that who you're thinking of when you're writing your books? Do you have like an audience in your mind? Like for specifically for God has a name, did you, were you like, I need to write this because this group needs it? You know, it varies a little bit from book to book. God has a name is more broad than anything I've done before. But yeah, I'm definitely writing to that kind of uh, more millennial, educated, urban or metropolitan living in the kind of secular post-Christian digital age, that kind of a world, you know? So obviously I want to write stuff that's broad enough that somebody who's way outside of that demographic, for lack of a better word, would read it and enjoy it. But I think one of the, the good pieces of wisdom I was given as a writer early on that just seems to be common sense is you can't write to everybody. You can't write a book right. for everybody. Right. And you can't, be all, you, you can't be everybody. You can only be you. And so, and the most authentic things come out of my own life, my own story, my own context. I don't live in the Bible Belt. And that's not the culture that I live in. It's not the culture that I work in. And so it's not the primary culture that I'm writing to, even though I would probably sell a lot more books I'm writing to, you know, well to another well to another environment. And there are times yeah. when I question that because it's not that I don't write the, you know, the kind of formula that makes for necessarily a bestseller. But this is this is where I am. This is where I think America is going. This is where I think the millennial conversation is. And I want to be a part of it and help serve people, help people figure out how to follow Jesus and be transformed, become more like him in this yeah. day and age, in this kind of a context, you know. Tell us what um, God has a name. Can you like summarize it and kind of tell people what it's about? Okay, so if you're a reader, you're a Christian, maybe you'll get this joke. Maybe your listeners will, maybe they won't. Uh, The (laughs) easiest way, I would say that God has a name is like if A.W. Tozer is the knowledge of the holy Uh and Rob Bell is what we talk about when we talk about God had a love child and she rebelled against her parents. <laughs> okay. That, I'm in. I'm in. That's so I don't know if that makes sense to you. I wanted to put that in the back of the book and my publisher said, nah, maybe not. Oh yeah. But, oh yeah. Good old um, zombie. That's basically it. Because basically what it is, it's a book, it's it's a quirky kind of book. It's a book about God. And I think every generation kind of needs a book about God, as broad as that is. So at one level, it's very intellectual because I'm kind of beating up on the the right and the left and my search for kind of an option C, a third way forward. I don't mean that so much at a political level as as a social and spiritual level. But on the other hand, um, it's kind of my heart is that people would walk away from the book having kind of been intellectually stimulated, but even more so just being driven to pursue God. I remember reading it was a book I read on God when I was, I think, 16, 17, 18 years old, and it just shaped my my pursuit of God, and it generated in me a desire to get up in the morning and to pursue the God that made me. You know, so at the end of the day, that's what I hope. I hope people walk away from it with a better view of who God is and who God isn't, and even more importantly, with a deeper desire to seek God. But it really is beating up on, on one hand, the on the leftist side, the kind of progressive recasting of God to make him into a good, educated, progressive intellectual to fit in 2017 in a city like Portland or New York or Hollywood or wherever. And because there's just this huge swath, this huge move to update God for the modern world right now. And I think a lot of it is really toxic because 
the end of the day, you're just making God in your own image. But then on the flip side, I think the conservative view of God is often so systematic theology driven, so academic that God often becomes more of a doctrine than a person. Our view of God becomes more about theology and ethics than it does about relationship. And I think this view that emerges of God and the way he works in the world quickly becomes this kind of autocratic, what's going to happen is going to happen kind of mechanistic thing. So I'm really beating up really hard on that and driving for a relational vision of who God is that transcends the kind of left-right polarization of our society and kind of makes both sides angry, but hopefully drives people (laughs) forward into a desire to pursue the real true God. Right. Or it doesn't have to make them angry, right? Like we can come at it from whichever side we're standing on, come at it and go, this, if this is true, where do I need to change? Absolutely. what do I need to do? Yes. And that's the whole thing. I mean, so I mean, the basic idea of the book is that what you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that's kind of a a summary of a A.W. Tozer line from a famous book from the middle of the last century where he writes that what comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing because you move toward your mental image of God. And I think in our language, we would just say that we become like what we worship. And the odds are that how you think about God in your mind's eye will shape you into a very specific kind of person. So if you think of God as homophobic and racist and mad at the world, that will shape you into somebody who is obviously homophobic, racist, and mad at the world. If you think of God as this good kind of left coast, hybrid driving, progressive Berkeley grad, it will shape you into that stereotype as well. If you think of God as, you know, you fill in the blank, it will shape you into you fill in the blank. The problem is that most of us end up with a vision of God that looks a lot, awful lot like us. And, um, you know, what's that saying that God created man in his own image and man being a gentleman returned the favor. <laughs> right. And often what we believe about God um, has very little to do with Jesus of Nazareth or the writings of the Old and the New Testament. It has more to do with our culture, our family of origin, our personality, our bias. And we get, I think, really confused and God becomes this projection of our own ideas and opinions and desires and identity politics or identity, whatever, rather than a reflection of Jesus of Nazareth and the writings of the library of scripture. And then the problem of course becomes that everybody gets bored with God because your God isn't actually God. It's a figment of your imagination. And it it really has just, I think a catastrophic effect on how we relate to God first and foremost, and then the kind of people that we become. So that's really the driving force of the book is we need to think well about God through the lens of Jesus and the Old and the New Testaments in order to actually live in relationship with the real true God, not a figment of our imagination, and in order to become the right kind of people, not just a people who mirror and mimic the right or the left aspect sure. of American culture. But like a classic seven, John Mark, I'm really comfortable with the God I've created. <laughs> so, <laughs> because he's fun, he's right? He's like fun and like totally gets me. And so- Oh, I know. Right? So that's my definition. That's how, that's how you know if you've made God in your own image. He agrees with you and everything. Right, I know, I know. He loves all the people you love. He hates all the people you hate. He doesn't disagree with you and he'll do exactly what you want. Yes, what I come up with my imagination is the direction that things will go exactly and you know he never makes you mad or upset or scared or questioned because he's you know a figure yeah yeah that's how it's it's been going great jama it's really i need you to not mess with this i'm I'm sorry i'm sorry (laughs) but it doesn't go great because then people have their little you know worldview of god 
that they baptize and and then they're bored and then they don't actually experience relationship with the real true God, you know? And, and then I think, because I mean, God's kind, he blows that up and it, and it throws you into a tailspin. Exactly. And then it just doesn't yeah. work because then yeah. life comes and disappointment comes right. and reality right. hits, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. One of my favorite lines from the book is God is not a human, but he is a person. Yeah. Talk about that for a second. Yeah, I mean, I, it's such a simple idea. So we talk about the fact that God has a name and that it isn't God. It's uh, Yahweh in the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew proper name for God. And we just talk about how that's not And semantics. you're going to take his name from me? Jamar. Yeah. <laughs> killing me, man. I, I didn't take anything. Come on. <laughs> yeah, you're like, actually, Annie, I just read the Bible. So try that. Try that. But I, I think the fact that God has a name says a ton about who God is, that he... Mm -hmm. He's not a human, but he is a person. And what I mean by that is he's a relational being, not an energy force out in the universe or a doctrine and a systematic theology textbook or an idea in your head. He is a person and that he is a relational being who wants to relate to you, who wants to know and be known by you, who wants to call you by name and wants to be called by name by you. And that I just think that is a staggering idea. I think for all of the talk about the cliche of personal relationship with Jesus and American church culture, I actually don't think we have a clue the gravity of what is behind that kind of a statement, that there is a relational being at the center of the universe who made you, made everything that is good and beautiful and true, and his posture is one of wanting to relate to you. Mm. That, that's that's mind-blowing, you know? Yeah. And to Jesus, yeah. God... Jesus took it another step further, and Jesus' favorite name for God was Father. It's the most relational posture there is of a father with good intentions toward you as a daughter or as a son. Like, that's just a staggering picture of who God is and what it means mm. to be in relationship with him. Yeah. What is your hope for this book versus the other ones you've written? What do you mean? Do you, when you think about the book, do you think, I hope it does this, or I hope it does that, different than what you hoped for Garden City? I th my, my real deep desire and hope is that people will walk away from this book and even more, most of the book is about kind of thinking right about God and that really matters to me. But honestly, at the end of the day, what I really hope it does is that people walk away from this book and they're just driven to seek God with all of their life and have, you know, I think God and a lot of American culture is more of a hobby than an actual whole life pursuit. And, and God and following Jesus, whatever you want to call it, it just, it doesn't really work as a side project or as a hobby. It right. is, it is all of life. When Jesus That's said, right. come take up your cross and follow me, it wasn't a, like, you know, an hour on the weekend when you don't have anything better to do and there's not a game right. off. There's right. a whole life apprenticeship to Jesus and relationship with the God that he called father. And there's a beauty to there. I just, I don't know, in my own life, I have just found so much life in God and not to sound sentimental or sappy or cheesy, but like the best thing in my life is my relationship with God. And there's a lot of great things in my life. I have an amazing family. I live in a fantastic city, incredible community. Um, I got enough seven in me that I really enjoy eating and drinking and Come culture. On. And there's a lot of great stuff in my life. At the end of the day, life with God is hands down the best thing on offer. And I just, I think a lot of people feel really distant and disconnected from God. Even people that are involved in church and reading books about God and have an intellectual life. I think at the end of the day, they don't experience God in the way that they ache to if they're brutally honest. And I just hope that this book unlocks 
anything that is kind of standing between people and a pursuit of God and encounter with God. So someone who's listening, who feels that exact thing, that like ache, that like, I know there's more than this, they need to read God has a name, but what would you tell them to pray? Yeah. I mean, there's a, we kind of start with Moses prayer out of Exodus where he prays, show me your glory. And I think that's a, that's a phrase that we misunderstand in the English translation because we hear the word glory and we kind of think fame or credit, you know, like right, glory right. to God. What we mean by that is like fame or credit to God. But that's not the idea behind this Hebrew word for glory. It was more like the glory was that cloud that was God's presence. Mm-hmm. So glory was more like God's presence or his his nearness, his close byness, and his beauty. And I think that's a great prayer to just start with. God, show me show me your presence. Show me how close you are, how near you are. I mean, when Jesus taught us how to pray, the first thing he said was, our Father. So that's just loaded right there. So we come to God as Father in relationship. He has good intentions toward you as a son, as a daughter. I mean, that's right there is staggering. And then the next line was in heaven. And of course, Americans just grossly misunderstand that. We hear heaven, we automatically think some like sky city up in the clouds, <laughs> right. where all that word in Greek is, it's just air or atmosphere. Jesus is saying is that God and his dwelling place is as close as the air up against our skin. God is all around us. Our father is all around us. We actually were to wake up the reality that God is all around us. He's here. He's now. He's our father and he has good intentions toward us. That would just transform the way not only that we pray, but the way that we live, you know? So I just show me your glory. Show me how near you are, how close you are, that heaven is not some cloud city up in the sky. It's the air up against my skin, in my inside my body itself it's that close and show me your beauty like how good and beautiful and true you are even if who you actually are is a surprise and it's not what i thought and it goes against my culture or my upbringing or even my church tradition even if it's a surprise still show me how beautiful you are yeah i think one of the best things we can we are it may be our generation maybe it was the one right before us i'm not sure but it feels like there's a new permission in the church to ask god questions absolutely right to kind of go like hey i don't understand all this but i'm gonna just start asking some things that i'm gonna that i want us to talk about lord you know right. and that and so that feels really beautiful and true to kind of go yeah show me your glory there's all these things but but none of them matter like you matter and i just want to see you and then the rest of it i mean you know I'm going to get you to sing, turn your eyes upon Jesus before we're done here. Then we'll just, I'm just kidding. I'm not. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Can, the band on the other side. Can we just, can we start now? Yeah, yeah, can yeah. we go? <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay. Well, listen, here's the other thing we've got to talk about before we go is you love coffee and food. Like you're a foodie kind of guy, correct? Yeah, absolutely. One of the best food foodies in America. Okay. So the last question we always ask on the podcast because it's called that sounds fun is what sounds fun to you. So like if you could have a dream meal, what sounds fun right now is like the best meal, the best thing you could do right now. What sounds fun to you? Oh my gosh. Um, okay. So, da, 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 da. so I've been, I've been eating a, a mostly vegan diet lately and we, we just got this new cookbook from this Portland person who's right down the street and it's, it's on the food is unreal. It's beyond is it really? Um, Do you remember uh, the name? Can you tell it to us? It's called, um, I think it's called Minimalist Baker, but it's not mostly baked goods and it's just fantastic. So a lot of people hear vegan food and they just think kind of gross hippie food rather than like everything from scratch, unbelievably good, sumptuous, fair. So I think a big, huge vegan feast with some of my closest friends to celebrate the book release and a really 
really good bottle of wine. I just got back from South Africa. They have this wine there I'd never even heard of called the Pinotage. It's just no, grown in South Africa. Oh my gosh. You need to go out, go to Whole Red Foods, or white? You have. It's a red. I'm a red okay. guy. And you got to get a Pinotage. And uh, yeah, I think that's that sounds fun. A vegan feast with some close friends and a good bottle of Pinotage. Okay. Now, that I, I'm going to totally agree with you. You get five stars on your choosing what sounds fun to you today. Way to is. way to be a seven in your heart. That's right. I like that about you. Hey, John Mark, thanks so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. it was so no, fun. it was a joy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. For sure. Now we're stuck being friends. See, is that? I mean, I hope you're kind of down with that because hey, we, that's we how need more, we need more sevens in the world. So you going <laughs> to come visit Portland and have some really good coffee? That's right. Yeah, I'll do it. I'll I'll head that way and we'll and I'll get you to take me to the what would where what's the place? What's the spot that you take your friends? Well, there's a lot of great coffee in the city. My favorites that are close to where I live is a spot called Heart and another place called Cova that are okay. two roasters in town. Heart um, has pretty good distribution, so you might have them at some third wave shops in Nashville or New York if you're there. Cova is a little bit more boutique, but you come, we'll have some good coffee. Okay, so here's the thing. I'm just going to be honest because that's what that's what this is about. Okay, sure. okay. Is I'm not normally a coffee gal because I'm a Uh-oh. lot. I'm like I'm a I'm I have enough energy without the caffeine. Yeah, but mm-hmm. in very special situations, I will abandon my tea for coffee, and this feels okay. like. Well, there's Feels there's like- another thing. There's a, there's a little spot right down the street called Tea Bar that you would love. Okay. Like all tea, specifically matcha, but all oh, sorts of fantastic serious. teas, all yeah. from scratch, and like high, gorgeous, beautiful Scandinavian design, giant glass windows overlooking oh, yeah. the park. It's it's a spot. We're so gonna double down. We're gonna we'll, double down. We'll do coffee and tea. You know. Yeah, I'm into that. Your writing and your teaching has had a massive impact on my life, so I'm super grateful. Oh, you're really kind so, and gracious. Well, I wouldn't say it if I didn't mean it. So you've, I, I do Sabbath every week now. I mean, really, oh, you, you've beautiful. really. We went to some buddies, and I talk about it a lot. My buddy Matthew and Ross from Texas, because we all went with Israel Collective to Israel two years ago. Oh, you did? And, okay. Yeah, and then we brought Sabbath into our lives when we got back because we because yeah. of Garden City. We read Garden City beautiful. right when we got back, and it was like. Like, oh, and it's a game changer, dude. I and mean, isn't it's it like, cool being in Israel where you actually feel the whole city or society shut oh, down if you're in Jerusalem or something like that? It's so rad, yeah. And doing yeah. like a real Shabbat dinner. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, the whole thing was super oh, rad. So, that's beautiful. So thank you for your contribution to culture you know, because it has affected my life. That's so, so I'm grateful. Thanks for sharing that. All right. Thanks, bud. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I mean, you guys, I took notes when we talked. I took notes when I listened back through the podcast. I mean, so much good wisdom from John Mark about how we do this faith life, how we walk in the way of Jesus. I love that language, and I love the idea of what that could really mean. And and praying it like, God, show me your glory. I'm going to write that. We've talked about this before, but I have a dry erase marker that sits right in my toothbrush and toothpaste holder so I can write on my mirror in my bathroom. And that is going to be what I put up there is, God, I want to really see who you are. Show me your glory. I'm looking forward to that. I'm so grateful to John Mark for taking time to be on the podcast. I hope you will grab God Has a Name. And his other books are incredible as well. If you're looking for to get a collection going or get back up and see what else he's about, there's My Name is Hope. Loveology and my personal favorite, Garden City. 
And so definitely make sure you grab his stuff. I think you'll be really glad. And his church, Bridgetown Church, is easy to listen to on their podcast. So it's great teaching. I really enjoy it. And John Mark's the one who introduced me to the Bible Project, which has helped me to read through the Bible in a year. And I've really, really enjoyed it. Hey, if you enjoyed this conversation with a dude who is an author, we've got a couple other. You can go back to our very first two episodes that do not sound as awesome as this, but are great content. Two episodes with author Ted Decker, who is one of my very favorite fiction writers. Tim Shaw, author of Blitz Your Life, has an episode, as well as Michael Ware. His book, Reclaiming Hope, came out in January, and I totally loved it. There's a lot of others. Russ Ramsey, Scott Saul, just some great episodes. Adam Weber's that was last week. Didn't y'all love him? Oh my gosh, I know. I know, I keep getting texts and emails of people going like, I love that episode. I love talking about prayer. And I'm like, I get it. So I hope that you will go back and check out some of those other episodes. If this is your first time hanging out with us, hi and welcome. And we're so glad you are here. If you wouldn't mind, just go back to iTunes and leave a little review. It lets strangers know that they're welcome here to hang out and be friends. And go ahead and subscribe and you won't ever miss an episode again. I promise. I promise. That's a promise I could make to you. In a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing an episode as I am in the middle. Well, middle is a generous word. I'm at the beginnings of writing my next book. And we're going to do an episode about what are your questions about the book writing process? What does it actually look like as it is happening? So if you have any questions about writing a book or the process of it, how it starts, what happens in the middle, when I cry, etc., feel free to reach out. My email is easy, Annie at AnnieFDowns.com, F as in fancy. That's also my Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, anywhere you want to find me, Annie F. Downs. It's embarrassing how easy it is to find me on the internet, you guys. So feel free to reach out. I would love to get some more questions. We've got a 20 or so, so we're going to get through as many of them as we can in a show that does not make you insane and feel incredibly too long. I loved hearing John Mark's answer to what sounds fun to him. And what sounds fun to me today is going and working on a blog post that's been percolating in my mind. So it actually sounds really fun to sit down and really write it. So I'm going to go sit on my porch and do that this afternoon. I hope you will go out there and do something that sounds fun to you. Y'all have a great day and we will see you next week. I like getting to say see you next week because we have more episodes coming. It's like every week, you guys. It's not like every other week anymore. We get to do it every week now. And seriously, that is what sounds fun to me, getting to do a podcast every week. So we will see you next week.